speaking of social distancing, I wonder how you would describe 2020? How would you describe it? One word that we could possibly use would be the word battle. Maybe you're battling with several things this year. Maybe the year has just been one long battle. Maybe you're battling with people. Maybe you're battling with your mental health. Maybe you're battling at work and negotiating, staying at home and going in and, and, and wondering whether you're still going to have a job for much longer. Maybe you're battling with family, possibly having to see more of them. <laughs> Wasn't meant to be a joke. <laughs> Maybe you're battling with your finances. There's several things that you could be battling with. And of course, battling really is a part of life. It's a part of the Christian life. And today we're going to read about a battle. And so I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. You know it well, even if you've never been to church before, even if you have not been in Christian circles for a long time, I suspect you all know the story. True story, but I use the word story. It's the story of David and Goliath. We've all heard it for those of us who are in Sunday school since then. This is a classic battle scene that we've got here. You ever seen Braveheart? Mel Gibson in Scotland. You've got two enemies drawn up against each other, 400, 800 metres apart with nothing but grass and paddock in between them and standing there with their spears and swords and so forth ready to go at it. Well, it's a similar scene here. We've got two enemies facing each other. We've got the Philistines and Israel. And um, it's out in the country. And in between them is a valley. It's not like a Grand Canyon type valley. It's just like a valley you would find on a farm. I've been there. There's a stream running through the middle. It's just kind of a couple of undulating hills. And the Philistines on one side and Israel are on the other. And it's a bit of a standoff. It's been going on for 40 days, in fact. And what's been happening is that the Philistines, who are the enemy, Israel's enemy, have got this what they call a champion. And his name, and, and he's got a reputation, obviously. That's why they call him the champion, because obviously he's won battles for them in the past. And his name is Goliath. And he stands at nearly three meters tall, and he's wearing a hang a lot of armor. We don't know how much armor. Some scholars suggest up to 100 kilograms of armor. So he's a big man. And he's got a bronze javelin slung over his back and a spear and his very own shield bearer going on ahead of him. Imagine having that job. <laughs> and in verse 8 we read that Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Saul is the king of Israel at the time. Choose a man. No, don't worry about this battle stuff. Don't worry. Just choose a man to come and fight me. Choose a man and have him come down to me. Verse 10. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. 
As I said, this has been going on for 40 days. And no one in Israel is willing to take him on, not even Saul. And you might remember back in chapter 9 and 10, it, mentioned, it describes Saul twice as head, and, head taller than anyone else. So he's a bit of a giant himself. And not even he is willing to take on Goliath. He's quite an imposing figure, obviously. Now, at this point of the story, our attention is drawn away. Imagine watching a movie, and all of a sudden you go to the next scene, and all of a sudden we're no longer in the country, we're no longer in the battle scene. We've gone to the sleepy town miles away of Bethlehem to a young man, not quite a boy, called David, tending his father's sheep. Now, the connection between David and the standoff here that we've got going on in the country between the Philistines and the Israelites is that David's three oldest brothers are there in the Israelite army. David's the youngest of eight boys. He's too young to go off to war, but his three eldest brothers are there. And one day, David's father says to him, take your brothers some supplies, see how they're getting on, Find out all about them, return to me, and let me know how they're doing. So David gets up early in the morning, leaves his sheep with someone, a babysitter-type shepherd, and goes off with his supplies for however many miles it is from Bethlehem to the scene where the battle has been going on for 40 days. There's been no battle, but this standoff occurring. And he goes off to the Israelite camp just in time for the two armies to do their standoff thing again. And David's all excited. He's just like a little kid. He's just like, oh, this is awesome. And he, he drops his supplies. He runs up to the front line, greets his brothers. How you doing? He, and then all of a sudden, while that conversation's going on, Goliath comes out again. Comes out from the front line of the Philistine camp. And Goliath steps out, and all the Israelites flee. This has been going on for 40 days. They still get scared every time they see him. And David overhears some of the Israelite soldiers talking. In verse 25, do you see how this man, Goliath, keeps coming out? He comes out to defy. It's the second time we've seen that word. He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David's not motivated by a woman, not voted by any kind of tax exemption. He's not actually intimidated by Goliath. He's the only one. He's actually appalled Everyone else is cowering in fear, and David is disgusted. He calls Goliath a disgrace in verse 25. Verse 26, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, third time we've seen that word, the armies of the living God? David's disgusted because this man is defying God. Just step out of 1 Samuel 17 for a moment. This word defy occurs a number of times in the Bible. In Isaiah 36 and 37, the king of Assyria is about to attack Israel. And so he sends his um, chief person and some of his army off to Israel 
in preparation just to intimidate Israel. And he sends them off to Hezekiah to give him a message. And here's the message he gives him. This is out of Isaiah. I'll read it to you. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. In other words, you've got no hope. Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save the lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? That's defiance. The word defy occurs in that context. That's defiance. In other words, God can't deliver you. God is not really God. He's not all you claim him to be. That's defiance. In Psalm 42 verse 10, the person who defies God is the person who says, where is your God? That's the person who defies God. This kind, of defile, this kind of defiance really riles up David. Everyone else is scared to bits, but it's riling him up. And eventually Saul, king of Israel, hears what this young man, a little bit out of boyhood, hears about his enthusiasm and sends for him. I hear you think you're a match for Goliath, Saul says to David. David responds in verse 32, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now, I think Saul's probably pretty unimpressed with this, impressed with his enthusiasm, but not really sharing in his confidence. He says in verse 33, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. He's got years and years and years and years of experience. Not to mention the fact that he's a couple of metres or one and a half metres taller than you. David says, in effect, I may lack combat experience, but I've got the skills. Verse 34, I've been keeping my father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. Struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will just be like one of them to me. Because he has, there's the word again, defied the armies of the living God. Just going to be like a bear or a lion. I'll take him down. No problem. Saul lets him go. He hands him a suit of armor, puts on the suit, gives him heavy helmet. David puts a spear in his hand. David tries to walk. This is not going to work. It's too heavy. I need to be agile. I need to be, I need to be able to turn. I need to be able to weave and duck. You can't go into war not moving. So he takes it all off. He ditches all of that. And instead, he resorts to the stuff that he's brought with him. He didn't come ready for a battle, of course. He just came with his supplies and his bag and his his shepherding stuff. And so he resorts to that. Picks up his shepherd's staff, goes down to the stream, picks up five stones, 
puts them in his shepherd's bag, which is where he'd usually put his lunch. And last of all, he picks up a sling. He strides out where no one else was willing to go, out into that middle of the open space. All the Israelites looking on, thinking he's mad, saying, brother's probably saying, goodbye, David. Goliath sees him coming, and he sets out with the shield bearer in front of him. Not that he probably thinks he needs one. And as David comes more into view, you can just imagine the Philistine army just, oh, look at this, who is this? Jeering and mocking and making fun of him. You just imagine the shouts going on. Goliath looks at him and he's insulted because he looks at him, he's just a boy and Goliath might, and plus he's handsome. In other words, he's a pretty boy. Why come out and get your hair all messed up? You're, you, you're more of a model than you are of a warrior. What's going on here? Goliath is really offended. Look at what he says in verse 43. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Am I just someone you're going to throw sticks at like a dog? Go and fetch. Come here, he said. I'll give you, I'll give you a flesh to the birds and the wild animals. That's what's going to become of you. David's not scared. Verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. There's no ifs, buts, maybes. And I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. Take that. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. It's pretty brave. While everyone else in Israel is, 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 is burying their heads in fear and worried about their own skin, David is thinking of one thing. How dare this man defame God? Everyone else can only think of themselves. But David's only got one thing on his mind. God's reputation. And how dare this man challenge it? Notice what Israel's men said back in verse 25. Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy who? Israel. Contrast, this, contrast that with David's motivation. Goliath hasn't just defied Israel, he's defied God. You see, David's a rare breed. It's rare to find someone so concerned for God's reputation, isn't it? Imagine what your life, my life, might look like if we were only concerned for God's reputation. What would that look like? How would you appear to other people? How would you appear to your family, to your colleagues at work, to your friends at university? How would you make decisions? How would you spend your time? How little would you see, and I'll talk about me now, how little would you see my ego on display 
in a meeting when someone else disagrees with me? How little would you hear me being critical of others? How little would you hear me going on about my achievements? You'd get a sense that there was something different about me, wouldn't you? If God's reputation was the sole driving force in my life. I think of the Apostle Paul who wanted to go to Spain, but instead he ended up in prison in Rome. He wanted to be a missionary in Spain. Instead, he ended up in Rome in prison. I remember, long story, I'm just... I can't tell you the whole thing, I don't have time, but back in 1993 when uh, my wife and I went to see our elders at Taupo Gospel Chapel to see to get their blessing to go to Dallas Seminary, short story, they said no, short story again, I cried um, and just pity, self-pity, etc., etc. I can't finish the story, I'm sorry, but just to tell you that I was more concerned about me than I was anyone else. But here's Paul. He can't get to go to Spain. He can't, get to, he, he can't get to go through with his desire, his plans. And what does he say? In Philippians 1.12, I won't turn there, but in Philippians 1.12, he says to the Philippians, I want you to know what has happened to me has served the gospel. In other words, don't worry about me. Don't worry about, that my plans have been shattered. Don't worry. Just rejoice that it serves the gospel. And and later on, just a few verses later in Philippians 1, Paul says that some preach Christ from bad motives. But rejoice. Why? Because Christ has preached. What do we do? We criticize him. We say all bad things about him. Just get on the internet for a while. You'll find it. He says, rejoice. Christ says, why? Because Paul was a man who was totally concerned for Christ's reputation. I think of George Mueller. You might have heard of George Mueller. George Mueller has been a big part of my life in some ways. My wife, Kathleen, her grandmother was an orphan in Bristol in George Mueller's orphanages. Um, When we lived in Australia, I first started teaching in a Bible college. It was called Mueller College of Ministries just north of Brisbane, named after George Mueller. And later on, when we moved down to that neck of the woods, my kids went to Mueller College. And so George Mueller's been a big part of my life. We've read his um, biography together as a family. Mueller's goal, this is what he was driven by. Mueller was driven by wanting to show show the world that God answered prayer. That was his goal. His priority was to show the world that God was faithful. And and he took in, during the course of his life, he took in 10,000 orphans into his orphanages. During the 19th century, there was a cholera outbreak. It wasn't a pandemic, but it was an epidemic. Spread all throughout Britain. Highly contagious, killing many people quickly, even just some within the first 12 hours, many within the first 12 hours. And many people locked down voluntarily. They were scared stiff, but not Mueller. He wanted to help people. 
So he would wander the streets, comforting people, reading the Bible to them, praying for the dying. Meanwhile, he's got a pregnant wife called Mary at home. Mary struggled with this. And one day she said to him as he went out the door, she said, what if you get sick? Have you thought of that? To which George replied, but I have to do it, Mary. Someone has to help these people and let them know that God cares. And what about me, Mary said? Does God care about me and our little one? There's nothing to guarantee you'll even be alive to see it born. She wiped away the tears. I'm reading this out of his biography. I know, I know, said George soothingly. But Mary, you cannot imagine me hiding inside my own house while there are people who need God's comfort and the little I can do for them, can you? Mary shook her head. No, she agreed quietly. That would not be the man I married. When Mueller died, news spread throughout, not only throughout England, but the whole wide world. No social media in those days. The streets of Bristol were lined with thousands of people. It was the biggest funeral I'd ever seen. England's Daily Telegraph newspaper wrote that George Mueller had robbed the cruel streets of thousands of victims, the jails of thousands of felons, and the poor houses of thousands of helpless waifs. The Liverpool, Liverpool Mercury, another newspaper, asked the question, how was this wonder accomplished? Mr. Mueller has told the world it was the result of prayer. The rationalism of the day will sneer at this declaration, but the facts remain. George Mueller was a man who lived his life with one thing in mind, God's reputation. What would your life look like if you decided from this day forth that you're going to live and make God's reputation your priority? That's the kind of man David was, and that's the man a little more than a boy, facing Goliath. Remember, we're back to David and Goliath now, back to the battle. David's gone out. He's gone out with a sling, with a shepherd bag. He's facing Goliath. Goliath's on the other end calling him a dog, and they've got the army laughing at him. And David and Goliath moves towards David. David runs toward Goliath. David reaches down into his bag, takes out a stone, puts it in his sling, gives it a couple of whirls, Sends it flying, and where does it land? Bang, smack right in Goliath's forehead. And he just falls like a big tree with a thud to the ground. He's not dead yet. David walks up to him, pulls out Goliath's spear, cuts off his neck, hangs his head up. Victory to David and to Israel. David's a hero, gets the girl. It's always funny how a girl comes into <laughs> these things, isn't it? He's exempt from taxes, and he gets the respect of the entire Israelite army. This is going to seem like a strange, a strange transition, but it, it is a transition. The first time I ever read, read Genesis 3, about Adam and Eve to my boys when they were very young. Probably only had two at the time. I remember Luke, I remember saying to Luke, he would have been about three, I guess, maybe younger, I'm not sure. When I got to Eve being enticed with the fruit, 
right? You remember the story, serpent, take the fruit. I said, what would you do? Luke said, I wouldn't do it. Of course you wouldn't. Of course he would. We all would. That's the point. And that's how often we look at Bible stories sometimes, isn't it? We see ourselves as the hero. We're generally only the hero in our dreams. I've run all my life and I don't do this anymore, which perhaps says, perhaps it says I'm maturing. Well, perhaps it just says I'm getting too old. But when I was younger, I used to dream that, you know, I was the all black who scored the winning try. I'd made up so many of my dreams on my runs. And there were other dreams I had too, but that was probably my favourite. We're always the hero in our dreams, aren't we? I, I mean, I never had a dr- I never, I never dreamt or fantasised on my runs that, you know, like I was the guy who lost the game or something like that. And, and, and we're David in the story, aren't we? We're facing Goliath and we're listening to his taunts and we're about to pick up the stone and send it to his skull in our dreams. See, most of us don't think of ourselves as heroes in real life. This is true. Psychologist, Christian author David Bennett says in a book that he's written, when I ask people to imagine what, kind, what God thinks of them, most reply, a hero. No. Most reply, disappointed. See, most of us don't think of ourselves as heroes, only in our dreams. And the reality is that most, is that most if not all of us, would be on the sidelines with the rest of Israel in this story. That's where we'd be. I remember when we went to Dallas Seminary, we got to Dallas Seminary in the end. That's, you wonder how that happened, but I can't fill in those gaps. I don't have time. But we were, we'd only been in Dallas for one or two weeks. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's embarrassing, but anyway, it's for the point of a story. And um, I got up in the morning at 5 a.m. and there was a cockroach. I think it was the first time I'd seen a cockroach. I went and woke my wife up. <laughs> Not David. He squashes a cockroach with his little finger. See, this is why we love stories like this. We can hear about David going off to fight the giant Goliath and dream as though it's us, when in reality, it's not. And it never would be. And in some respects, that's not too far from the purpose of the story. At least the story as it fits in with 1 Samuel. You see, this chapter is part of a book, which is called 1 Samuel, so it's part of a bigger story. It's a story that 1 Samuel, the writer of 1 Samuel, wants to tell. And the point of the story of 1 Samuel is that David is God's man to represent Israel as their king. And chapter 17 shows us the kind of man he is. Saul was king, you'll remember, He was the people's choice. He looked the goods on the outside, but he didn't have the right heart. He was more concerned about himself, more concerned about his own reputation than he was the people, but not David. He's the man. He's God's choice for king. That's the message of 1 Samuel, at least as we get further and further into the book. But even 1 Samuel is not the full story. It's part of a bigger story. It's part of God's story which we find in here, the Bible. 
from Genesis to Revelation. First Samuel fits within that. And, and you know that all stories move ahead. You turn over the page, you turn over the page, you turn over the page until you come to the end. You never stop halfway through a story. You read on to see what's coming. Well, if we keep turning the pages in the Bible and we keep following it through, we eventually come to a person called the son of David. See, David in this bigger story is just a signpost. He's someone who is pointing ahead to a greater David. And the New Testament knows of him as the son of David who reigns on David's throne. He's called Jesus. And like David, he too came up against a Goliath. We know him as the devil. But the way he defeated him was not by a slingshot or spear, but by dying on the cross. Seems an interesting way to defeat an enemy, isn't it? David kills Goliath. But Jesus goes and dies. That's the way that he defeats the enemy. And what was the outcome? Look at Colossians chapter 2. What was the outcome of Jesus' death? Well, first look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Remember, Goliath was Israel's enemy. We also were God's enemy. We also defied him. For those of us who are Christians, we once lived like that. We were no better than Goliath. Defying God. But look what the cross achieved Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, which meant that we lived our own lives. We were our own God. We did what we wanted. We stuck our finger up at God, so to speak, and thumbed our nose at him and, and said, we don't want you. We'll live our own lives. Thank you very much. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Let's also turn over to chapter 2 to see what else was accomplished at the cross, to see how we got to this point of being reconciled to God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, do you, remember what, do you remember what Goliath was called? Remember what David called him? Uncircumcised Philistine. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And look at verse 15. And having disarmed, Christ went into battle on the cross against Satan and against the powers and authorities of Satan's realm 
and look what was accomplished. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He disarmed them. In other words, he defeated them. He took away their power. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. And now the result for those who are in Christ, for those who trust in Jesus for their their salvation, look at chapter 3. We are now raised with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. We are now raised with Christ. In theological language, that means that we now rule over all these powers and authorities. They no longer have power over us. But look at verse 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is now hidden in Christ. In other words, what is true of Jesus is true of you. I know you hear that. But do you experience it? What is true of Jesus is true of you. In other words, he's our David who has gone into battle and has one. We don't need to go and defeat Goliath again. It's already been done. And we are now hidden in Christ. In other words, we have a new identity. But there's still a battle. And it's the battle of identity. Let me illustrate this just from my own life because it's the best illustrations I have. One day, this many years ago, I was preparing a sermon. It was a um, it was Friday, and you know Sunday's coming, and basically no sermon preparing on Saturday, because family day. And so, if you didn't get it done by Friday, Saturday night. And so, I'm, I'm just preparing. I'm madly preparing the sermon, and then Kathleen said to me, she's in the kitchen. She says, "Alan, could you go and attend to the boys?" So, just very young at that point which is code for, you know, they're doing something wrong, please go and, you know, take care of it. I didn't even look up, just kept on writing at my computer. Five minutes later, same thing. Alan, go and, please go and attend to the boys, same thing. Same thing, didn't look up. Uh, five minutes later, she ramps up her voice just a little bit. Alan, could you please go and attend to the boys? I ramp up my voice quite a lot. Well, I used my voice. I hadn't spoken up until this point. And this is basically exactly what I said and exactly how it came out as I remember it. I'm preparing a sermon. I was angry. Why? Because what was going on there, looking back, was a battle for my identity. You see, when I get up here and speak, you will think something about me, don't you? And if I'm not careful, I tie my identity to that. I tie my identity to how you, how you think about my sermon, how you think about my preaching. If I'm not careful, I let it define me. That's the temptation. That's the temptation for everyone who gets up here. It doesn't matter whether you're there or whether you just get up here and do a testimony or whatever. It's always a temptation. It's a battle for identity. The battle is to hide my life in my preaching, to hide your life in your musical talent, 
to hide your life in your work, to hide your life in your relationship, whatever it is. And that's the battle. And that's the Goliath that always comes at us, tempting us. Tempting us. You need, you need to be good at this. You need your work. You, you, you need to be wealthy, whatever it is. But what we need to tell ourselves is that our life is hidden, not in these things, but in Christ. You see, these things will never die for us. These things will never give their lives for us. They'll never forgive us. They'll just demand more and more and more. But Christ died for us. He didn't come at us even though we were his enemy with a slingshot and stones, a spear. He came at us with love and compassion. You see, we still have a battle. The Bible talks about it. I might be able to develop this more in my second sermon because I have more time. But 1 Peter 2.11 says, Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. James 4.1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? See, there is a battle still going on. It's a battle for identity. It's always a battle for identity if you think about it. And the, and, 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 and the battle is, the temptation is, is this, that you... You, need, you find your identity in money. Find your identity in your job. Find your identity in your qualification. Find your identity in your relationship. Find your identity in your preaching. And the way to win that battle is to continue, and I'm guarantee, I guarantee Gary tells you this time and time again, is to go back to the gospel and to remind yourselves of the gospel, to remind yourselves that your life is hidden with Christ to remind yourself that you are his, to remind yourself that you are forgiven, to remind yourself that he died for you even while you were his enemy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Please help us as we fight, as we fight the good fight of the faith, as we engage in spiritual warfare, as Ephesians 6 calls it to fight with the weapons of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.